Good morning, church. Trust you are awake and warm. We have been talking, as Tony mentioned, about uh, our workplace, and I have tried to broadly define that for you every week so that we realize that uh, we all have work to do in life. Whether we are currently employed, uh, whether we're looking for a job, whether we're retired, whether we work for pay or we're volunteer or we're uh, working at home with children. As I said, if you have children, you, uh, that is one of your jobs, and whatever else you may do, that's at least one sphere, an arena of your work. And our goal in doing this is to, <clears throat> I guess, in a sense, war against the mindset or mentality that religion is a compartment of our lives just like every other compartment we have in life. So we've got our religion, whatever that is, and maybe we would say, well, I'm not religious, or I didn't grow up with it, or I did, and, and it's over here, and then I got my work life, then I got my family life, then I got my social life and my hobbies, and these are all separate things. But the truth is, I mean, that's just a lie. We're not separate people. We are the same person, and all of these things integrate together. And one of the liberating things to find out about the scriptures is that God has made us as whole people, and therefore... Our relationship with God isn't about religion or isn't about a certain thing that we do on Sundays for a period of time or reading, simply about reading the Bible or praying and having a private spiritual experience. But this is about realizing how God and his life and his spirit and his power and his word speaks into every hour of our day. As Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, said, there isn't a corner of creation over which God doesn't say, mine. Every part of the world is God's. Every bit of it is his, and not just we're talking about the physical earth, but everything that is in it, he owns and has an opinion on. And in fact, we find from scripture that he created us to work, to find enjoyment in it. And every one of us has been wired to do something, activity, work, not just leisure, but work with our hands, with our minds, with our bodies, with our skills. And each of us are different. What it looks like is different. The kinds of jobs change all the time, but the fact that we have given, been given this is a calling from God. And so we're meant to actually explore, okay, how does God and his word speak into the thing that I'm going to do for about 100,000 hours of my life? Now, one of the unique dynamics that we're going to address today is one that, is a, that affects every one of us. And this is this whole question of who the boss is or the relationship, if I can use an archaic and maybe provocative term, the relationship between slaves and masters. Slaves, those who, whose work life is determined by someone else's will and agenda. Someone who doesn't really have much say over how many hours they work or what they do in their work. They're just told when to be there, when to leave, and their work is directed by someone else. Or there are masters, those who are directing the work, the ones who are supposedly in charge. Every one of us has this experience. Now, if you're a parent, you are both slave and master. <laughs> you're in charge of these children. You're supposed to lead them, but you're often slaving for them and for your household and for whatever's happening. Some of us maybe have for many years found ourselves in the position of a slave, and maybe that's a strong term, and I realize it's not what it means, it doesn't mean for us what it means for many other people, but in the sense that you're not the boss. You don't get to decide what you do or when you show up or when you leave. And there are others who are directing the work. Maybe you have people that you are directing and you're the master, you're in charge. Many of us, if you're in middle management, or you're between. You, both, you have a master and you are a master. If you're a teacher, 
You're sort of leading the children, but you're also a slave to them. You're being led by the administration. And so many of us are between these realities, but it affects every one of us. And, and I don't think it's an overstatement to say that these relationships are the things that affect us most in the workplace. These dynamics, power dynamics, between people who are leading us or people we are leading. And it affects every one of our lives. Now, one of the things we have to realize is living in this age, in the 21st century, we have a set of goggles on that when I say the word master or boss, it, is a, it has a negative connotation, immediately negative, which is different from previous generations. We are a part, when the, when the Enlightenment movement, so the, the thinking and writing and the philosophy of the 18th century, 19th century moving uh, from Europe, uh, was beginning to throw off the influence of the church. The church and all the mess that it had become in terms of the, the feudal system and knights and kings and church and state all getting all twisted up and creating so much chaos that maybe if you studied history or church history, you know about. The Enlightenment movement began to say, we don't want the influence of the church and religious leadership in our lives anymore. The church can't tell us what to do. And so we need to think for ourselves. And so reason became religion. And with it, progress and science became its ultimate ends and values. And so we did not want the influence and the authority of the church. And who can really blame Europe for that reaction over what had happened over the centuries prior? But the authority of the church, authority of religion was sort of rejected. And now we put our faith in a new kind of authority. Scientists, doctors, politicians, business leaders. These became the new authorities. But shortly after, World War I, World War II, and then a, a, a bunch of economic chaos that happened through those times, political fallout, economic fallout, and now suddenly, at the turn, and, that, that, and the Enlightenment ushered in what we called modernism or modernity or the modern era, but at the turn of sort of the middle of the 1990s, we, we entered, and nobody knows exactly when it started or how exactly to define it, but uh, theologians, philosophers will say we are in a postmodern era now where we have not only rejected the authority of the church, we have given up on all authority. We have felt failed by our politicians, failed by our princes and kings, failed by our CEOs, and failed by doctors. And we'd say, well, yeah, we go to doctors, but we have a whole, we have now have alternative medicine, right? We have second opinions. We have WebMD, and we have our friends. And these we actually consider, if you think about it, just as legitimate sources of people to speak into our health than our doctor. Our doctor might say something, but we talked to our friend and her doctor said something else. And I looked up online and I read this and I went to a naturopath and they said this. Now these aren't negative things, this is just what has happened. None of this would have been questioned in a prior age. What the doctor said was true. Likewise, politicians, the entire political election process is meant to vet out what? The inauthenticity. We're trying to find the hidden agendas because we don't trust anyone. And the person we vote for, we just distrust the least. We don't really trust politicians. We're not expecting them to actually get anything done and change our world. We don't trust CEOs and leaders of companies. And it's very normal for us in our workplace to question the authority in our workplace and going, what are they thinking? All of us have done it, whether outwardly or under our breath thinking, we question the authority of leaders. Now you just have to realize this is not normal. It, this hasn't been happening for hundreds and hundreds of years. We live now in an age where our fundamental approach to authority is to distrust. And it is what it is. It has become as a result of all, like I said, all the historical movements. But just to recognize when we talk about this relationship between slaves and masters, between the leaders and those being led, we have goggles on. 
that are almost impossible to completely take off, the best we can do is to know that we're wearing them. That when we talk about issues of authority, we have a distrust and it creates a difficult relationship. And many of us may have come by it honestly. Forget the grand sweeping sort of geographical political movements, maybe in our own lives. We have been failed by parents, teachers, doctors, our bosses. And so our approach to authority is a difficult one. And yet, this is one of the most influential dynamics in our workplace, right? People say, the old saying, you join a company and you quit a boss. The person you work for makes the most difference in your working environment. It is difficult, and as, you're, as you are someone whose life, perhaps you'd say, yeah, I'm kind of more on the slave spectrum. More of my work is determined by the people around me. I don't get to choose what I do. I don't even get to choose when I show up or when I leave. Everything is told and prescribed to me. That relationship you have, and maybe it's not with a particular boss, but just with a faceless company, and you feel that sense of angst and difficulty. Or perhaps you're someone tasked with leading others. In your home, parents, make no mistake, you are leading your children. That is the responsibility you have. And there is a challenge in this. How do I lead people to a place that sometimes they don't want to go, that they don't know they need to go? Perhaps you have uh, children and students or other people that are in your care that you are responsible for. How do I lead them? How do I bring the best out of them? How do I work with people that maybe don't want to be led or distrust? If that's, if that's the climate that I'm leading in, that we just distrust authority, well, that puts you at a disadvantage as a boss right away, as a teacher, as anyone up in front of the room, even myself. There is skepticism now for anyone, towards anyone who leads simply because of the title or role that they have. And so this creates a complex dynamic and yet one which has a dramatic effect on our everyday lives. And so thankfully, again, scripture speaks into this issue for us. And what's interesting is we find in some of the letters that are written to the young churches, the, most of the back half of the New Testament, the first four books of the New Testament are the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, and all the rest of them are letters. And most of those letters are written to churches like ours, in a sense, maybe even younger than ours, new churches, churches that are still young, forming in their faith and saying, okay, this is what it means that Jesus has come to earth, lived taught, died, and rose again. It now changes everything. And if you look at most of the letters, they follow this similar pattern where they begin to explain to us what the gospel is. And near the end of most of the letters, they, they cover, okay, now what does this mean for your relationships? What does this mean for your home? What does this mean for your work? Because this was the reality of everybody who was in that church and say, this isn't just sort of spiritual theory. What does it mean now for our lives? And we're going to look at a letter from the uh, gospel, uh, from the um, from that the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, a collection of churches. And near the end of that letter, he addresses this whole issue of slaves and masters. Now here's a context for you. These were, most of them were in house churches. And so in these house churches, many of them, the, the most of the economy in the Greco-Roman world in the first century was upheld by slaves. So the slaves were working. Now, to a degree, it's a little bit different than the kind of, um, life slavery that we uh, have seen and, and that's happening now that we've seen in Great Britain, the, the black African slave trade in the uh, uh, 19th century, where um, these were slaves for life and they were slaves who were captured. In this case, a lot of it was called indentured servanthood. So you could buy your way out if you were making enough money. It doesn't mean it was a good existence, but you had work to do. You often lived in the home of, uh, of your master. Sometimes your master could adopt you as a child. Uh, and you could change your status in the home or you made enough money, you could eventually buy your way out and be a free person. 
So that's why there's sometimes references where Paul says, if you can get your freedom as a slave, get it. So there was that option. So it's a little bit different than ancient slavery. But as we get into this issue, you might think, well, why is Paul even just talking about, shouldn't he be writing saying, there should be no more slavery? And let's just say this. In this letter, Paul was not trying to address the systemic issue that had pervaded the entire Greco-Roman world. He was not trying to overthrow slavery in this letter. He was addressing the fact that he knew there were people in the churches who were slaves and some who were masters. Now, interestingly, what he says in this letter are the seeds of truth that eventually caused Christians like Martin Luther King Jr. and William Wilberforce in England to overthrow slavery for good. They understood there was gospel truth in here that was eventually going to slay, change the way Christians saw slavery in the long run. But that's not what Paul was trying to address in this moment. And so just need to shell that for a second if we find this offensive that even he wouldn't even, why didn't even Jesus do it? It began. These were seeds that planted it eventually did. In this moment though, Paul is addressing this dynamic. You have people in a house church meeting together and it's possible that one of the house church leaders was a slave. So he's the house church leader for that day. The next day, back to work. Now he's the slave and the master who was in his church is now his master again. And so it was creating some of this conflict and some of these slaves are thinking, well, hey, now, now that we're Christians, shouldn't this whole thing change? And the masters are thinking, well, now what's going to happen? Because this guy's leading my house church on Sunday and then on Monday, he's got to work for me again. What's going to happen here? And so there were some strange power dynamics even happening in that culture. And so Paul speaks into that. And even though we have different situation now, it speaks volumes into what uh, what we need to know that will dramatically change this, this thing that dominates our lives and this sort of um, negative reality that seems to pervade all relationships between slaves and masters. So here's what Paul says in Ephesians uh, 6, verses 5 to 9. It's near the end of the letter. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. This is the stunning truth that Paul delivered to this first century church that is still stunning to us today that if we take it into our lives, we'll change everything about the way relationships go between slaves and masters. He says this in several different ways. Jesus is your master. Look what he says. I've underlined it for you there. Just as you would obey Christ. Obey just as you would obey Christ. Like slaves of Christ. In other words, Jesus is the master. Serving wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord. And then masters, Jesus is both your master and the master of your slaves. Now here's what should happen when we, when we say this statement, okay? And I want you to say this for a moment. We're going to say Jesus is my master together. Let's just say it. One, two, three. Jesus is my master. Now here's just two ways you should say this. One, with freedom. Oh. Jesus is my master. And another, with fear, Jesus is my master. Paul tells them this to evoke two different feelings that both are meant to be kept together as we realize that Jesus is my master. First, with freedom, Jesus is my master. This is the cure for overwork. 
for some of us and them who felt like, and for them, their entire lives were driven by this slavery mentality. And maybe some of us can say, okay, I'm not going to call myself a slave, but I feel as though all of my days are driven by this machine that I'm in, by this job that I have to have. And perhaps it's causing you to overwork either literally in many, many hours or psychologically and emotionally that even when you're not working, you're working, the stress is there. Maybe physically you feel it. And you are driven perhaps by a fear of what if I don't perform or I have to keep this job, I have to get approval, I have to make sure I don't get fired, I have to make sure I'm keeping ahead, I have to make sure I'm keeping up. All of this can drive us like a slave because we are, what, responding to our earthly masters. And perhaps things aren't going well with our earthly masters right now. Maybe our company's laying off people. Maybe our boss in particular seems to have it in for us. Or maybe we're entering a new environment and we're like, oh no, I got to perform. I got to prove myself. To those slaves, Paul says, remember, Jesus is my master. He got me this job. If ever, whatever I have in my hands, he gave to me. I didn't earn it by my own merit and therefore I got to keep it by my own merit. I didn't earn it by them thinking I'm good and now I got to prove to them I'm good. Jesus gave me this job. He is my master. He is ultimately in control of my fate at work, which should free me from overwork, from working too hard literally or working too much mentally, afraid that I'm going to lose my job. To, to those slaves, Paul says, Jesus is your master. And we say, oh, that brings me freedom. I don't have to be afraid I don't have to try to win approval or prove myself. He is the one in charge. He's my boss. It also should produce a little fear in us. Jesus is my master. This is the cure for underwork. For those of us that are tempted to cut corners, maybe he says, when no, well, he says you know, only don't just obey when their eyes are on you. In other words, you're giving eye service to it. When everyone's watching, you're doing a good job. But when no one's looking, you're cutting corners and you're surfing the net or you're doing whatever. Jesus is my master. He's the one I'm handing this presentation to at the end of the day. He's the one that's right with me on the shop floor. He's wherever I am. He's in the classroom with me. He's in the truck with me. He's everywhere. He knows everything I'm doing. He knows how many breaks I'm taking. He knows how many times my mind's wandered off to do something else. He knows how many times I've gone, eh, I don't need to do that. Jesus is my master. Paul said there should be freedom, but a little fear. Because I'm not sticking it to the man when I'm cutting corners. I'm sticking it to Christ. Maybe if I feel unappreciated or cheated by my employer or I feel like unappreciated because I'm not getting paid enough or I'm getting looked over in promotions, I'm not getting recognized. Paul says, Jesus is your master. That should make you work with a little bit of fear no matter what your earthly master is like. Now, again, as postmodern people, we hate this word fear. Oh, we shouldn't, shouldn't fear God. What is the, how do we understand the fear of God? One is to realize that when we read through scripture, anyone who truly comes into the presence of God only has one reaction. They fall on their face. And this isn't like, oh, I should. This is instinctive reaction. This is like a water droplet on a hot pan. It doesn't decide to evaporate. It's by its nature. This is what we are like in the presence of God when someone so holy, so pure, we fall on our faces. 
And yet, it's a fear that has a reverence and respect and love. Somebody said it to me this way, and I'll never forget. It's like two boys walking down the street, and one of them is a bit mischievous, and he says to the other boy, hey, let's go throw rocks through that old lady's window. And the other boy says, no, no, I can't. He says, why, are you afraid your dad will kill you? And he said, no, it would kill my dad if I did. I'm not afraid that he will kill me. I love and respect and admire him so much, I would never want to do anything to him that would hurt him. This is the fear of Jesus as our master. He has been way too gracious to me for me to cheat him. He is way too powerful for me to trifle with him. He is far too merciful to me for me to take advantage of him. He has been far too generous with me for me to hold back from him. This is the fear of Christ as our master. Freedom, yes. I don't have to overwork. I don't have to panic. I don't have to operate out of insecurity and constant paranoia. Freedom from underwork. I'm going to do my best no matter who's watching, no matter whether I felt they've stuck it to me or whether I'm getting taken advantage of or I'm getting used up. I'm working for Christ and I will always give him my best. It's a recognition of stewardship. And and this is one of those things that I think, as I have contemplated it and prayed through this over the last several weeks, is beginning to change the way I see everything in my life. Is I see my work and my children, not my own, but God has put them into my hands and said, look after these things. I don't expect you to make them perfect. I don't expect you to get rid of all the thorns and thistles. I don't expect you to be perfect. That's not why I gave them to you. But I want you to treat them with reverence and awe because I gave this to you. Every bit of work you have in your life to do, whether you love your job or hate it, whether you're trying to get out of it, and remember, if it's slavery and you can get a way out, get a way out. But while you're waiting, every bit of work you have been given to do, every bit of time you have on your hands, whether you're retired or you're unemployed or part-time or whatever, every bit of it is God's. And he has said, and he's given it to you and said, do something beautiful with it. This is mine. I want you to treat it with respect. So even if you hate your job, even if you feel like it's a terrible place to work, he said even to slaves whose entire lives were defined by the fact that they were owned by somebody else, this is work that I have given you to do. So do it for me. That's why I gave it to you. Now, slaves, we might think, okay, but Jesus, you don't really know my work situation. Like, you don't really know, but he does, right? When Jesus came, he worked. He served. He knew what it was to be taken advantage of for people only to come to him and use him for what they could give him. Many of us feel like that in our workplace. We're, you know, our, our boss, our employers, they treat us as, as units of productivity. I'm only as good as what I can produce. Jesus himself knew as he came, what? All the crowds came to see him for what? Because they wanted something from him. And he was expending himself. It said when, when he would, they, they would come, he would say, said he would heal all of them. He would wait till the end of the day, pour himself out for them. He knows what it's like as you're there serving in a situation where you feel, I'm, taking, I'm being taken advantage of. He says, I know exactly what that's like. I'm not asking you to do something that I too have not done. He himself was a slave. He said, I've come to serve. I have defined my life here on earth in the position of a servant. 
What Christ asks us to do, in a sense, he comes alongside of us in our slavery and says, I'm serving with you, like you. I know exactly what it feels like. I know what it's like to be used. I know what it's like to be taken advantage of. I know what it's like not to be thanked. I know what it's like to, in the hour of need to have the people closest to you abandon you or betray you. I know what it's like to pour your whole life into something and in the end, when you need it most, it's not there for you. Christ, the slave, the servant, says to us, I'm your master, but I'm like that. What I'm asking you to do with freedom and a little bit of fear, I have myself. Christ himself knew, what did he say? He understood that his whole life was a stewardship issue before God, right? We forget this. Yes, he was God. But he said, I have come to do the will of my Father. I can only do what my Father tells me to do. He understood all of his life's work was directed by God. And therefore, he lived his life in obedience to God. And so he says to us, hey, everything you have to do, everything that's been entrusted to you was given to you by God. And so you're meant to serve for him. Jesus is my master. Jesus is my master. Now, what about masters? Equally, what he says to them was earth-shattering. And this was the seed that eventually began to upend slavery in Great Britain and the United States. What did he say? Slaves and masters, you're all the same before God. This was a world built on hierarchies. And if you were a master, you didn't work. It's not like the master was the hardest worker in the house. In the ancient world, in the Greco-Roman world, if you had money, why would you work? You hired people to do the work for you to run your business, to run your company, to run your farm, to run your household. So the masters didn't work at all. They were overall. Often it was inherited wealth or who you're born to. So you were systemically on the right side of the equation, always going to be better, and so your kids. And so slaves begat slaves. And so if your parents were slaves, you were probably going to be slaves as well. And so there was a, we talk about hierarchy in this culture. We had nothing on the first world, ancient world. And Paul levels it all in one statement. It says, Christ is master over all. In other letters, he says, there's, in Christ, there's no slave or free. These, these things that define and divide our lives are gone in Jesus. And this was the seed that got in the heart of William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. And said, this should not be because all men and women are equal before God. And so he leveled the playing field and said, Masters, remember, you have a master too. And so you lead like Jesus has led you. And how did Jesus lead you? He served you. Jesus said that in John 13. He says to his disciples, You call me Lord and Master, and you're right, I am. And then I wash your feet. This is who I am, Lord and Master. And how does, how does your Lord and Master treat you? He washes your dirty feet, even the feet of the one who would betray him, even the feet of all of them who would abandon him. And so masters, whoever you have in your care, children, teams, whether it's small office, a whole company, hundreds of people, whatever responsibility you are entrusted with, and you don't know what's going to happen in your life, maybe suddenly tomorrow or next week or next year, you're going to be entrusted with a lot more leadership. And you're going to have way more people to be responsible for. As you lead them, lead them like Christ has led you. He has served you. Did Jesus know what it was like to lead people who didn't want to be led? Did Jesus know what it was like to lead people who couldn't get what he was teaching them into their thick skulls? 
when are they going to get this? He was with his disciples for three years. It didn't seem they got it all. And in the end, they just left him. Did Jesus know what it was like to make the hard calls? This isn't about doing everything that people like. Many times in leadership and parenting, you're going to have to do things that the people you're leading will reject you for, not like you for, criticize you for. And Christ, out of obedience to the Father, said, yeah, but I have to do this because this is what I've been called to do. And so masters, that's how you need to lead the same way I have led because I am your master. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that we have received, we who can't get things into our thick skulls, we who are wayward, disobedient, and forgetful children of God, led graciously by Jesus, now lead wayward, forgetful, disobedient people. And Christ says, that's what your calling is. Remember, I'm your master. Remember how I have treated you with grace and mercy and patience and forgiveness. This truth revolutionizes the way we lead and the way we see the people that we lead as entrustments to us. Jesus called himself a shepherd. And I think it was Pat who mentioned this during our week of prayer. Just how, what, think about Jesus calling himself the good shepherd. He was defining his entire existence according to the people he served. Who is a shepherd apart from the sheep? No one. And Jesus is saying, I have come and defined my existence here on earth and in your lives as one who leads you and lays down his life for you. This is mind-blowing that the Son of God would call himself shepherd to us. The shepherd doesn't stand around with the sheep going, hey, don't you forget. Who He's just running around, always bringing them in, calling them, caring for them, finding the lost ones, protecting them from foolish decisions, laying down his life for them, staying up at night for them, putting himself between wild animal, putting, putting himself between them and wild animals. This was the existence of the shepherd. And Jesus says, as you lead, never forget, lead like me, your master, in the same way, so you should lead. How about if we saw that defining our lives as living to serve those who God has entrusted to us? We all know that's what makes for the best bosses. Those are the kind of people we all want to work for, who deflect praise and accept criticism, who shelter us from, you know, the difficult things, take responsibility for what didn't go well and always praise the rest of the team for what did, who aren't living there for their own ambition. And some of us, we say, well, it's, it's the almighty dollar that's our master at work as a boss. Well, we have to do this because the bottom line demands that I have to do this and I'm sorry if the team doesn't like it. Or I'm driven by my own ambition, my own corporate ladder climbing. Or my own goals. And Jesus says, that's not how the master operates. Your master is not money. Your master is not your career ambitions. Your master is not your personal goals. Your master is not what your masters think about you. It's me. This truth that Christ is my master, if it comes into our hearts, begins to change the way we see our bosses, begins to change the way we see our masters, the way we see slaves, the way we see ourselves. So here's what I want to do for you. One of the practices that we've sort of lost a little bit as the church is the ability to imagine. Now, when we imagine and visualize something, we're not imagining something that doesn't exist. We're imagining something that does exist, but that we forget. And so we need to picture it in our mind. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to close your eyes for a second. And I want you to picture your workplace. 
Now, if, if you have a family at home and you work out of the home, just pick one. Uh, whatever one has seemed to come to mind most as I've been talking today. So picture your workplace. Maybe, maybe it's a, uh, a truck you drive or a car you drive. Maybe it's a classroom. Maybe it's a shop floor. Maybe it's uh, uh, your home. Maybe it's an office. Maybe it's customers that you're, you're with constantly. Maybe it's a particular area, like a cube area where you work. I want you to just picture that for a moment. And here's what I want you to visualize. For those of you that are overworked, you're, you're feeling stressed, you're fearful of maybe cuts that are happening around you, or you're just feeling the pressure of not living up to what you think you should be doing. You feel like you're failing. You just feel the daily pressures of work, and it's causing you to overwork, maybe hours or maybe just in your mind and heart, you can't let it go. Now picture yourself in that workplace. I want you to see Jesus with you. Maybe you're washing floors, and he's right beside you, washing them. Maybe you're sitting in your desk and he's right beside you. Maybe you're driving your truck, he's right beside you. Maybe you're in a classroom and he's right beside you. You need to hear him say, I am your master and breathe a deep breath of freedom. You need to hear him say, hey, you don't keep this job. I have given it for you. I will protect it for you. Maybe you need to hear him say, hey, you need to calm down. And trust me, maybe he's reminding you that he didn't give this job to you because he thought you were going to be perfect at it. He knew your imperfections. He didn't give this job to you because he expected you to get rid of all the imperfections in the people you lead or in the work you're doing. But he wants you to trust him. And maybe as you're picturing your workplace, you're one of those that's struggling with underwork. Maybe even frustrated or tempted to laziness or cutting corners or feeling indignant about the way you're being treated. You need to picture Jesus with you, watching everything you do, calling you out to a higher standard than anyone else in your work would hold you to. You need to picture him there when you're alone and nobody sees what you're doing with your time. Picture his voice instructing you to stay focused, to not let your frustration turn into bitterness. Maybe he's reminding you that he was taken advantage of as well, that he knows what it's like to work for people that are ungrateful. Maybe as you picture your workplace, think about the people you lead, think about the faces of the team you're with, your children, or the employees of the sales team. Maybe they're bucking your leadership. Or maybe they're just not performing well. Maybe you're, you're under pressure because your team is not making it. Or you've been given deadlines that are impossible. Maybe there's backbiting and fighting in your team. Maybe there's unrest. Maybe there's some who are actively opposing your leadership. Remember, Jesus is with you. He's right there with you in that meeting. He's right there at the front of the room. He's right there as you are leading in your home. He's reminding you that he too was rejected. His leadership was spurned as well. He's reminding you that you have been given to these people as a gift to serve them. 
He's reminding you that to be master and Lord is to be a servant. You can open your eyes. You know, this visualization exercise is not just this nice thing we can try to do for a few moments here and then we're back to it today or tomorrow. The scriptures tell us that we have been given the Holy Spirit as the presence of Christ with us. What we have just visualized is reality. And I don't know about you, friends, but I forget reality all the time. I forget that he is with me, in it, with me. Not just up there, God, I see what you're doing, the all-seeing eye. I'm right there in it with you. Christ, his presence in our lives. What we have just done, we need to do over and over and over again, remembering that the Holy Spirit is his presence with us in our workplace. And perhaps that visualization is something you need to do every time you're entering your workspace, every time your feet hit the floor in the morning, every time you get in the car, every time you cross the threshold of your, of your uh, business. I've written out three prayers here for you. They're on the screen and they're on your bulletin as well. And maybe just one of these will be relevant for you today. These are prayers that we pray to Jesus. And what I'm going to do is just read them shortly, and I'm going to just give you two minutes to pray one of them for yourself. Some of you maybe need to pray this prayer. Jesus, show me where I'm being lazy or cutting corners. Give me a holy fear to work hard for you. Jesus, show me where I'm under too much pressure to perform or succeed. Give me the freedom to accept your love and approval. Jesus, show me where I'm leading out of selfish ambition or pride. Help me serve and pray for the people I lead. Just take a few moments and whatever, if any one of these prayers resonates with you, just use it and pray it to him. Or if you have something else you want to pray, just take a couple minutes to do that and invite the worship team up. Let's just take two minutes to You know there's risk involved in all of this, right? Why should you do this? There's risk to working harder and not being appreciated, not being noticed, getting taken advantage of. There's risk to being freed from the pressure. If I'm really going to breathe in a deep breath and say, okay, I'm free. There's risk because what if I'm not overworking anymore and my employer doesn't like it? What if I'm not heavy-handed anymore? What if the people rebel that I'm supposed to lead? There's risk in serving the ones you've been entrusted to and maybe they don't return. Maybe it doesn't return in profit or tangible results. There's risk. Why should you do it? Scriptures tell us. Paul says, Christ who is the master of all will reward every one of you. There is no command in Scripture and the, the dominant view of scripture is not that you should obey for the sake of obedience it is always for the sake of reward it's c.s lewis who said the problem is not that we're looking for pleasure the, the problem is we settle for too little of it it's like the story of two men both of whom are invited into a room and given a job that they're going to do for an entire year they have a whole box of nuts and bolts and they're supposed to put them together as many as they can every day room's kind of cold it's empty and they have to come in. And one man is told, at the end of this year, you'll get $20,000 if you do this every day. The other man's told you'll get $20 million at the end of it. Same work, same job, same environment. It'll be cold some days. They're going to cut themselves. Maybe if something's not sand or fine properly. Cut themselves on, you know, I've done that, okay? Screws and stuff. 
Maybe you can't get the bowl. Maybe you drop it. Every so often, one of those men is going to fall to the ground with gritted teeth and sing, why am I doing this? And the other one will be whistling. Why? Because the reward is so much greater than the cost. And this is what Paul says. Why should you do this? Why should you lead like this? Why should you be led like this? Because Jesus, who sees everything, will one day return and reward you for all that you have done. And so that is my blessing for you. And my hope for us is that as we grasp the reward that Christ, the good master, will give us, it will free us to take the risk to do what you have just prayed for this morning. I'm going to give you a Trinitarian blessing this morning. May God, the Father and creator of all things, strengthen you with what you need to do the work that is in front of you. May the Lord Jesus Christ pour into you his grace that it may flow out of you as well. And may the Holy Spirit be the constant reminder of the presence of Jesus with you everywhere you go. Did you receive that? Amen. Thanks so much for coming. Just have a seat. Tony has a couple of announcements for you.